0: Are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, Lord, we ask that during this time you give us hearts that are eager to to listen and to learn, to be receptive to your word. We ask, Lord, that Uh, that I would simply be your mouthpiece for this text, that you would speak to us uh, the things, Lord, you want us to hear, and that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, this is often a time of year when uh, we begin to think about starting new things, you know, going to go on a diet. You don't have to raise your hand when I mention these things, okay? Um, I'm going to start you know, a new reading plan. I'm going to look at the whole year afresh. And so there, there's, there's a positive side of it. There's a good thing uh, uh, to, to looking afresh at, at your life. And uh, you know, in, in sports, in particular in baseball, it's called spring training. Uh, you go to spring training, you go back to the basics. You know, This is a ball, this is a bat, this is what you do. And you go back to, the, to those, those places that you begin. And I think this morning what I would like to do is to go back to a very foundational text of Scripture, and that is Psalm 1. And for me, Psalm 1 has been a, uh, a, a healthy text of Scripture to guide me in my life uh, since I was in high school. Um, I went to a Christian school And there, the first text I needed to memorize was Psalm 1, and it has been my guide through the years. And probably for you, this is a psalm that you've memorized or you're very familiar with. Yet, at the same time, it's good to go back to the basics and to see what this psalm is talking about. This psalm begins with the righteous man and ends with the wicked. It begins with the promise of blessing And ends with the promise of judgment. It weaves a comparison of the way of the righteous with the way of the wicked. The righteous also being described as the godly, the blessed. And the wicked also being described as the ungodly, the sinners and the scoffers. And friends, it answers three main questions which will ultimately be the questions we'll be looking at today, what influences are motivating the direction of your life? Or secondly, what does your life really look like? And then the question, where will your life end up? So put it all together, the question is, where are you going in your life? What is the direction of your life? See, the psalm is also describing life as a journey. Using the metaphor way, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. And Jesus uses the same way metaphor along with the gate metaphor to describe the same journey. Just read and follow along as I read this particular text. That'd be Matthew 7, 13, and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And I think what's really interesting here is that Jesus is very honest about the fact that the way of righteousness is is a way of difficulty. It's not a way of ease. It's a way of hardship. And so when we think about the way of the righteous and we think about the way of the wicked, the way of the righteous is not a way of ease. Following God is not just like, okay, I've got it all figured out now. Following God means I've given you perspective and I'm going to give you direction. And I'm going to give you counsel. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But I'm giving you the tools you need to walk down that path. So the realities of life that Jesus describes in this verse are applicable to our understanding of Psalm 1. Because Psalm 1 is the first of the Psalms for a reason. It is the door to the rest of the Psalms. It is setting the stage, so to speak, to understand that there is this wrestling match between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And we enter into the Psalms with an understanding then that this wrestling match is going on. And so this is a, a signpost giving direction to the weary travelers. So this morning, as we come to Psalm 1, I want us to consider uh, the three questions to diagnose your spiritual direction. So this is going to be a self-diagnosis. And yet God is going to be the one who's asking the questions ultimately. And this hopefully will help you ask the question, where am I in my journey? What is the direction of my life? What are the areas maybe that I need to pay attention to? Where are some, what are some things that I need to, to work on in this coming year? Three questions to diagnose your spiritual direction. The first question is this, who or what is driving your life? What are the voices that you're listening to? What are the words of wisdom that you're dwelling on? What are the signals that move you along into action? And friends, if we're honest, we recognize that, that the truth is we're all being influenced by someone or something. Now you might say, well, I do my own thing. Well, the, the idea of you doing your own thing is the result of an influence that's being put on you. You are being moved along. And you are listening to voices. And you are being driven by someone or something. And so when it comes to your life, when it comes to your pursuit of living out this journey, where is the influence coming from? The psalmist describes the two kinds of influences that the righteous man faces. Notice what it says here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the, of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So first of all, first influence, I'm calling the pressure of the world. The pressure of the world. Now do you see the progression that the psalmist wants you to take note of? It's a subtle progression. But that is what happens in the world of influence. We begin with walking, and that walking then moves into this next mode of standing, and then into the next mode of sitting. So, this is a subtle transition going on here. Then we have this, this next transition of influence. It begins with our beliefs be the counsel of the wicked. It continues on to affect our behavior, that would be the way, and ends up identifying the arena of our belonging. We're seated now with the scoffers. These are the people now that we identify with. There's a progression, and it begins with the walking. It begins with our beliefs. Or to say it a little differently, first, our thinking is affected, which then influences our actions and feelings, and then ultimately we find ourselves within a community that we say is ours. This is how the train of influence runs on its tracks. First the head, then the heart, and then you find yourself at home. You see, just this movement, there's just movement. And so, on a practical level, one of the things you can ask yourself is, am I on this train, where am I on this train, and what do I need to watch out for? And quite frankly, you don't just automatically find yourself seated in the seat of the scornful. You get there by listening, walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Being open to those ideas and thoughts. And slowly you begin down the path of this place where you find your identity with that particular group. So we're either seated with the righteous or we're seated with the scorners. Dale Davis says we must remember that the lure of the wicked and sinners and scoffers does not usually appear in its grossest form. And I think he's right. It's ever so subtle. It comes from places we would never expect. It grows with loyalties and friendships that we might believe are safe. It can come from teachers, from mentors, from friends, from family, even from spouses. It suggests that if you don't think a certain way, you will not be clear or a sharp thinker. In other words, you're ignorant if you don't think like we do. It pressures you to think that if you don't act in a certain way, you won't be cool or fit in with modern society. You might even be on the wrong side of history, and you wouldn't want to do that. It skillfully manipulates you by saying, if you don't laugh at or mock at what we laugh at and what we mock at, you won't want, we don't want to be a part of you at all You're not going to be accepted or even tolerated within our group. And in today's world, it is turned upside down by saying, if you're not offended by the things that we're offended by, then you must be a hater, a bigot, an evil person. If you're not like us, what? You're against us. And friends, these these are the pressures that come from living in the world, living in A culture. They're always there. Sometimes they're stronger, depending on where you live and the culture that you find yourself in. But there are these voices, there are these influences, there are these statements that come out of culture that are seeking to press us to fit in. And friends, the pressure is on, and the pressure is heavy, and it's incessant, and it's relentless. But the righteous person, the faithful follower of God, fights with all of his or her being to not go there on that journey now when I say fights with all their being I'm not talking about fighting against people I'm talking about this inner fight to seek to please God in living out their life for his glory and so this, this psalm doesn't get into the principles of how you do that. We even have to go outside of the psalm to, to come up with principles like disagreeing with dignity and humility or choosing not to participate in something, but choosing with grace, not seeking to put all the attention on yourself. Or right, speaking the truth in love or, or loving those with whom we disagree, but still having to disagree and having to make a choice. So we can go on with that, but you get the point. Unfortunately, however, the culture we live in doesn't even want to hear our thoughts and doesn't care about our convictions because that culture wants to challenge us and to squeeze us into its mode. In fact, listen to um, Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know this passage very well. The apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, so speaking to Christians here, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Why? The world is seeking to press you into its mold. It wants to fashion and shape you. He says here, though, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing uh, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that renewing of the mind is, is the idea of renewing your mind on the Word of God, the truth of God, the, the attributes of God, the things that God has revealed about Himself. Now we feel the squeeze of this, this world's pressure to conform to the dictates of that society. And as Christians, we're called to be discerning and wise and not led astray, and not to wander off into ideologies and practices that really are not godly ideologies and practices. And friends, this is the kind of stuff that's happened in history, and it's happened in the context of the church, and it's happened in the context of things outside of the church. Let's just talk a little bit about the church. When I say church, I'm I'm using that in the big picture. All right, so when, when the Catholic Church came to the Americas, one of the tools they would use was to coerce conversions. And your choice was either, either to con- convert or become a slave or die. Now listen, I'm all about presenting the gospel and people being converted, right? But scripture and I, and I think you would say, but not by saying you're either going to be a slave or you're going to die. You can't go about converting communities in that way. That is so far from what God's word says. And so we have to be discerning and realize that that we cannot fall into man's ideology to conform to some dictates. Conversion is something only God can do. Then you think about just, just the history in general, you think about the Nazi movement where it just it it influenced so many people with this idea of eradicating Jews from the face of the earth. And so many people got caught up in that. And you think about communism that, that promised equality for everyone. Oh, we're gonna live so wonderfully together in this beautiful, except for the fact that there was gonna be someone in charge, and those people in charge are also sinful people. And sinful people who are in charge abuse their leadership, and as they abuse their leadership, there is a rich set of people, and then there is the poverty-stricken people. So communism didn't work, and communism doesn't work. Those who are in power are always the one who control. And then in our society today, what we're listening to, what we're hearing are similar things, but the ideologies that we wrestle with today are often in the arena of morality. I mean, you know, eating meat is evil. Now I realize we're in California. Um, living in Michigan for a number of years, in October, the men would leave, and they would go north, and they would have all sorts of strange clothes that they would wear. And they were all like orange and plaid, and they would come home with trophies on top of their pickup trucks with. Antlers sticking up in the air and legs going this way and that. It's a common sight at the end of October to see people driving south on I-75 with animals on their trucks, their trophies, because they went hunting. Here in California, if that happened, people will be having heart attacks all over the place. It's evil. Well, there's a reason for that, especially in Michigan. Don't get into all that, or, or not recycling is selfish and shows you don't care about your community. i you've heard me say this. I'm all for being, you know, being wise and being a part of the community and, and recycling. There's a rightness to that. Driving a large vehicle is looked down upon, or disagreeing with the LGBTQ movement on any point is considered bigotry, even when it's clear, logical, and for the good of those who are in that movement. It's just the fact that you have anything to say that disagrees with what their ideologies are. Treating women with respect and dignity is now somehow chauvinistic and prudish. And more recently, a love affair with a utopian socialism permeates much of the airwaves and media in our contemporary context. And friends, the, the, the common theme that is throughout all of these things is the fact that Man is a sinful creature and man will always function based on his sin. And even those who are followers of Christ sin. But those who are followers of Christ have a conscience that is rooted into the gospel. And friends, we need to remind ourselves that we are to be influenced not by the world, but by something else. So the follower of Christ doesn't listen to those kinds of complaints. The follower of Christ it is not allowing themselves to be, uh, to be hoodwinked, so to speak, by those influences. They don't get their direction from society, but from the creator of the universe. And so we move from the, the pleasure of the world, or the pressure of the world, to the pleasure of the Lord. Notice verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And friends, you're going to take your signals from somewhere, aren't you? And the righteous man takes his signals from the law of the Lord rather than from the counsel of the wicked. And we notice here, first of all, he delights in the law of the Lord. He knows that the law of the Lord will provide the right kind of help, the right kind of guidance, the right kind of assistance that he needs. So he enjoys every time he he spends feeding on the word of God. He knows that the insight that God uh, is giving him through his word is giving his life wisdom and direction and strength. And that true nourishment comes as a result from feeding on the word that will provide the the spiritual nourishment that his soul needs. Now what does it mean to delight? I think that some of us in this room over this past week have delighted in some things. Christmas has a tendency of doing that. Whether it's dinner, whether it's chocolate-covered pretzels, whether it's pies. We went to the city on Friday, and we had a meal at the Cheesecake Factory. And we ordered cheesecake. Which is probably a good thing to do at the Cheesecake Factory. But we were so full. And we ordered it to go. And I'm still anticipating, delighting in my cheesecake. You know what I'm talking about. There's there's a sense in which it's something you long for. It's something that you enjoy. It's something you look forward to. It's something you're like, ah, I get to do this. So each day, friends, is another opportunity to mine the riches God has given us, to see what they are, how they are helpful to our lives. And friends, I think sometimes... We, we shortchange the word of God. I realize sometimes we're not, we're not necessarily in a mode to say, okay, Lord, what, you know, what do you have for me today? You know, I've got all these things going on and we kind of, we're kind of wrestling just to kind of get, get the mindset. But, but friends, if we just stop and we take in what is before us and we begin to approach the word of God in a way that, that we're, we're mining his word to, to gather the things that he has for us, It changes our perspective on on how we approach it. If we've never tasted the riches that God has for us in his word, we may be tempted to be satisfied with the grovel that we have. I love C.S. Lewis and how he sums up that idea so very well. He says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what it is what is meant by the offer of a holiday that would be a vacation to you guys at the sea. For you are far too easily pleased. You see, we're, we're, we're so satisfied by things that are lesser, when God's word is full of things that are far more richer than we can even imagine. There's so much for us to delight in as we open up God's word. So he delights in the law of the Lord, but not only that, he meditates on the law of the Lord. When I was in college, Uh, One of the things that that I found really, really intriguing was that the, the, the wife of the president had this idea that there was this miracle food, and it was called celery. And so you would go to the cafeteria, and you would find celery in the most unusual places. Because I think her dictate was to the whole food department, put celery in every meal, you know. I don't think it was in the cheesecake, that would have been pretty gross, but... I mean, everywhere, there was celery, 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 and the idea is that everywhere you would go, it would be there to provide nourishment for you. Now, a friend, in some way, shape, or form, that is helping us here to understand what meditating on the law of the Lord is, and the point is this, it is always there to be asking the question. In other words, when we meditate on the word, we're always asking the question on every text, in every situation, what does God's word have to say about this? How would God want us to think about this? It's always there. And so meditating on the word is not something we just kind of set aside for you know a couple of weeks out of the year or something like that. It is an ongoing activity that we're all involved in. And so it asks the question, what does the law of the Lord have to say about where I am in my life, the choices that I have before me, the ways I need to think or behave? It welcomes the law into the life as a guide. It longs for its counsel. So it is not only delighting in the law, it is meditating on the law. Now I know you know this is true, but um, the idea of meditating also has this this picture of of a cow chewing its cud. And you know that a cow has a a unique anatomy, has four stomachs. You you see a cow out there, and it's chewing on grass. You're like, oh, that's interesting. cow's chewing grass. What else does it do? Well, the other thing that cows do is they go sit down under trees. Well, they usually do that after they've been chewing on grass. Why? Because they chew on the grass, and they get the grass into their stomach, and they go sit down under a tree. And what do they do under the tree? They then sit down, and while they're sitting down, they bring up the grass from that stomach, and they chew on it some more. And that's where they get the real nourishment. The first one is just to get it in them. The second one is actually to chew it and to chew it and to chew it to get all the nutrients out. And, friends, that is a picture of meditation. Just constantly going back to the Word of God, reflecting on it, observing it, rethinking it, pondering it. And just like the influence of the world is progressively growing stronger, in other words, this walking, sitting, uh, walking, standing, sitting, so the influence of the law of the Lord. It is also moving from delighting in it to meditating on that law. So friends, what drives us is an important question. The pressure of the counsel of the wicked that seeks to squeeze you into its mold or the pleasure of delighting and meditating on the thoughts of God, his revealed word. Who or what is driving your life? This is where we need to hear the counsel from God. It it is the word of God that gives you and me clarity in these matters. And so a right habit of approach and understanding of the word of God is essential to rightly growing in your walk with God and giving you the resources for your journey of life. And so it's important that you spend time doing the following, simply reading God's word, meditating on God's word, studying God's word, Listening to the word of God taught and preached by people that you know are trustworthy. And by measuring those things that you're hearing by the word of God. Be Bereans, scripture would say. The ideologies of the world are many and varied, but honestly, there is nothing really new under the sun. Man's problem, man's issue has always been himself, issues of the heart man is either living humbly before God or selfishly apart from God that has been true since Adam and Eve so if you're delighting in and meditating on the law of the lord you will have tools to help you understand when the world is seeking to press you into its mold you will have a better idea when it's getting uh, it's getting you to think in ways that are contrary to the scriptures You will have an understanding of how the world is trying to get you to act in ways that will not please God. And you'll have a better grasp of those who you truly identify with and why. Friends, the voices of the world are subtle. And they will require ongoing delight and meditation in the word of God. So who or what is driving your life? Secondly, what best describes your life? That's the question we have before us now. Influences, shaping your life. Now what describes your life? And the psalmist here gives us two pictures. And these two pictures are both rooted, connected to what we've just seen, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The first question would be this. Is it a trait? Are you a tree? Well, let's look at verse three. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. So there's five significant characteristics that we need to take note of here. Number one, the tree is rooted. They say that the strength of a tree is not in the branches or its fruit, but in its root system. Is that right, Sid? Okay, see, all right, good. Just got confirmation. All right, It's good. The roots run deep and wide. In our backyard, we have an apricot tree. And this apricot tree, if you have an apricot tree in your yard, um, they're nice because they produce apricots, but they're nasty trees. They're just not... They're ugly, and uh, this one had been there, I don't know, it must have been for years, but it was just ugly, ugly, ugly. And so we decided we're going to cut it, cut it, cut it down. So we cut it all the way down. Uh, We didn't pull out the stump, but we cut it all the way down. And um, it's great, you know, a few shoots come up every once in a while. The problem is what I have now is I have apricot shoots rising up in my front yard. Because although I cut that tree down, its roots are still alive. And so the shoots are just going all the way over. I mean, we're talking about 40 yards or more and coming up. All right? You want to come fix that for me? Yeah, yeah, it would be a big job. All right? And the point there is this, is is that our roots are important. We need to have good roots. And the righteous person here is like a tree. That is rooted. So he may face all kinds of struggle, all kinds of pressure. He might even fall down. But the roots keep him alive, keep him secure. He is rooted. Secondly, he's nourished because the roots go down deep into these streams of water. They find their nourishment in this water. All right? So we find this picture then, this beautiful picture of this tree that is nourished because its roots are are tapping into this this water that provides the nourishment, in particular the spiritual nourishment that we would need using that illustration. So the question is, what are you feeding on? What are you tapped into? What are you soaking up? It's a legitimate question. Not only that, it is fruitful. It is fruitful. Notice it says here, "He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season." A tree that's supposed to bear fruit should be bearing good fruit, unless it's in my yard, that reflects the nature of that tree. Right, you don't go to an apple tree and expect to find thorns or, you know, some kind of other kind of bad fruit. You expect to find healthy apple. Uh, Apples on that tree and that is true of the righteous. They are going to bear the kind of fruit that fits with their nature. If you're righteous, you're going to bear righteous fruit. Scripture talks about bearing the fruit of repentance. There's fruit that comes as a result of walking with God. It is the fruit that is a reflection of the Holy Spirit living in you. That's what Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, uh, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all the fruit of the Spirit. And these are the reflections of those who are rooted into the right kind of nourishment because their roots are running deep. They bear good fruit. Right. next one is this tree is healthy. Now we're looking at the leaves and its leaf does not wither. Its leaves are a reflection of the health of the tree. I see you guys are gonna know how bad a gardener I really am because we have a lemon tree in our backyard. It's actually on our deck. My wife has always wanted a, a lemon tree and I have tried and tried and we got a lemon tree and it was a small one, put it in a pot, and I did all the things that it says to do. You don't overwater it, you water it you know, once a week, and you know, add some of the fertilizer that's specifically for that kind of tree, did all that. And it was healthy for a while. Uh, before long though, it would just start to shrivel. The, the leaves would change color and fall off. And before long, it just dies. Um, Don't ask me to come and help you with your yard. You know, it's not going to be a good thing. You know, I I, I read up on it. I wanted for this thing to produce the right kind of fruit. I don't think we had one lemon that it produced. It was just a bad experience. It's still sitting in my backyard as a reminder of how awful I am at being um, a gardener. But the one thing is true, delighting in the Lord and meditating on his word will produce fruit and lead you in the path of spiritual health. And this, is, this image here is given to us to help us understand that a, that a righteous person is like a tree with the roots tapped into the right source of nourishment and the result of that will be fruitfulness and health. And the, the leaves are evidence of that health. And, of course, finally it says um, that tree will be prosperous. Now, please understand, the prosperity that's being talked about there is not prosperity in life, meaning, you know, money and stuff. That's not the point. That's not even on the radar here. It's talking about spiritual prosperity. It's talking about a right relationship with God. So we can't come to this text and say, here's here's the proof, you know, how you can be wealthy and all that kind of stuff. This, This is not even the idea a prosperity in, a spiritual prosperity means you, you have the ability to have relationships with people and, and, and restore relationships that are broken and, and live in a way that honors God and be right with him and, and be on a, a healthy path and, and have perspective and, and discernment because the word of God is alive and active in your heart. So that this tree is ultimately prosperous. It's the end result of all of these things taking place. The question is, are you a tree? I know it's not the kind of question you typically go up to someone and ask. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Are you a tree? But that's what this psalm is asking us. Are you like this tree? Or, secondly, are you like this chaff? This chaff. Now, get the picture here. We'll read verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. It's quite a picture. It's it's a picture of the threshing floor at the time of grain harvest. The threshing floors of Palestine are are on hills that catch the best breezes and so grain is brought to them. Of course, the grain is is heavier and the chaff is the husk that's on the grain and so the the grain is ground either by animals or by, by actual hand tools. And then it's thrown up in the air and because the grain is heavier, the, the chaff gets caught by the wind. The grain falls to the ground. And so the chaff just gets blown away. Now sometimes the chaff, if it can be, is gathered and it's, it's burned because it has no usefulness. But that is ultimately what the picture is talking about. And so in comparison to the tree, we can say a number of things about the chaff. I just came up with, with five to reflect some in, in, in somewhat of a parallelism. Uh, Aspects or characteristics of it, the chaff is is rootless; it's disconnected, and so it just goes wherever it goes. It's worthless; it's not good for anything, so it's driven away without purpose, and therefore has no value. I mean, it's it's fickle. In other words, it's ever changing. It might blow this way, and then the wind blows again in a different direction, so it blows that way, and it just it's all over the place. It's just changing. It's weightless. It has no substance. It has no merit. It's purposeless. It has no purpose to be burned. These are all just kind of pictures of, of the, the wicked who are, who are these ones who are influencing. But even their ideologies are like chaff. Even the things that they value are like chaff. They blow. They just blow here, they blow there. Now, friends, this is the world we live in. Different things will blow up in the sense of rise up in our culture and and be popular for a while. And all of a sudden, something else comes in and blows away and moves back and forth. That's certainly true in the church, isn't it? I remember when I first came to California, you know what was the big thing in the church? Was the emergent movement. And if you don't know anything about that, good for you, Okay. But it had this, this kind of like, oh, this new thing. It's like we've got to get back to some of the medieval ways of doing certain things. And it's like, oh, really? You know? And so there's this big, big push, and then that blows out, and something else comes behind it, and some other kind of ideology, even within Christian culture, comes in and blows and blows and blows. But it's the word of God that sustains uh, throughout all those different things that are blowing in through culture. And it's culture in general, but it's also within Christian culture. And we have a responsibility to, to, to make sure that we are anchored to the truth in the midst of all that. And not be caught up with whatever happens to be new or, or marketable. It's the word of God. And this pictures then the empty, fickle, and futile life of the godless, right? And ultimately foretells their inevitable judgment. And those who choose to ignore God or run from him, they don't see this. They're not aware that although they're holding to these ideologies, they're just being blown around. They're just like chaff. They're they're being blown by the winds of the, the ideologies of the culture. They don't have any anchor to anything that is of any substance. So the world says, worshiping God is foolishness. It says that people who worship God never have any fun. Anyone here have any fun? Apparently they're right. Okay, good. Um, No, you guys have fun. Of course you do. The world says you shouldn't hinder yourself from having fun, even if some religion calls it sin. Reach out for what you want. Go ahead. Go ahead and do it. Be happy. Except that's not the whole picture, is it? go ahead and be happy for a season until you get smacked in the face by the consequences of your desire to be happy when you should have listened to those words of counsel that would have helped you to not go down that path. See, all of that's a lie. That's what Paul calls it in Romans 1 where he analyzes what happens when a people forget about God. In that passage, we we find this this fast-forwarding downward spiral, right? He uses the expression, and God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. And you know what he's doing there? He's saying, listen, if you want that sin, I'm going to let you have it, but I'm going to let you have it fully. And I'm going to give you over to it. And what happens is it produces all this heartache and trouble. But even then, they wouldn't listen to God. And so They continue on in sin, and God says, I'll give give you over to it again. And we end up having a society that's just been spiraling downward, slip sliding away down the hill toward destruction. That's the counsel that we're given to warn us to say, hey, listen, there's a better way. Don't be like this chaff. Be like this tree. What happens to the chaff won't be pretty. It won't be happy. But this tree that is mocked, that is scorned, that is ridiculed will dig its roots deep into the nourishment that God provides and it will stand tall through all the wind that society brings. It will stand tall. Now friends, what best describes your life? Are you a tree or are you like chaff? Well, the next question is this. Where will your life take you? So we've asked the questions, who or what is driving your life? Looking at the pressure of the world and the pleasure of the Lord. We've looked at what best describes your life, tree or trough, but Now we're asking another penetrating question, where will your life take you? Verse five and verse six, we have the answer. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I have a question for you. Are you ready for judgment? See, that's the question that these two verses are asking, a judgment is coming. Are you ready for it? Most people don't want to talk about judgment. It offends them to think that they will have to give account to a God at some time in their life. Or they think of that talk of judgment as simply just another manipulative tool to get people to buy into this lie of Religion. Friends, as much as society may want to tell you that the main message of Jesus is love, what comes out of the mouth of Jesus is judgment. Yes, he comes out of love, but he comes out of love because people are destined for an eternity in hell. And he comes preaching a gospel, that restores people or reconciles people to God by virtue of his own death on the cross. And so the whole point of him coming in a loving way is because judgment is coming. So judgment is central to the gospel as well as the the wonderful love and grace that God has bestowed on us through his son. He ultimately will take Your place in the judgment, if you put your faith and trust in him, but judgment is coming. So this psalm ends by asking the question, where will your life take you? And we see both the destiny of the wicked and the destiny of the righteous. The destiny of the wicked ultimately will be, they will perish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death, Solomon wrote. It's Proverbs 14, verse 12. That is the way or the destiny of the wicked. Seems right to man. But the end, it will lead to death. And when we consider the destiny of the wicked, three realities present themselves. First of all, see it right there in the text. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. They will have no justification at the judgment. You think of a courtroom scene. Standing before God. And they come and they stand before God and they say, look, look at all the good things that we've done. Here's how we've helped people. We provided, you know, tons and tons of water for people who are starving in Haiti or, or you know, thirsty in Haiti. We've provided food. we provided clothing for people who are pilgrims and, and, and getting away, you know, from, from the atrocities of war. They'll, they'll talk about all the good things they've done. But nothing will satisfy God on that day except to say that they are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But they're not. And so they're doomed. They will have no justification at the judgment. Secondly, if we continue on, it says, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Again, the word sinners here is talking about the wicked. They will... They will not have any kind of relationship with the congregation of the righteous. In other words, they will have no communion with the saints. You've heard people laugh and joke about the fact that, you know what? When I die, I'm going to go to hell. I'm going to go hang out with my buddies. And we're going to have fun in hell just like we had fun here. Don't believe that lie. Friends, it's not something that we laugh about. Be in eternal torment with fellow sinners and scorners and the ungodly. When, by listening to God and his gospel, you might be joining in with the chorus of heaven, singing praises to God. There's nothing humorous or funny about someone denying Christ and going to hell. They're lost, and they will have no benefit of being with God's people. Friends, just just think about... That statement. Think about the significance of what's being said here. There is a huge loss for sinners who will not interact with the congregation of the righteous. And then, if you are one of God's children, think about the beauty of also. What that means. And it's worth us just taking a little pause and identifying here that what we have here is a reminder of the beauty of what God calls his church. Where those who are righteous, not because of anything they have done, but only because of what Christ has done, calling them out, drawing them in to his flock, the church. They are the righteous gathered together. There's something beautiful about that communion. There's something wonderful and special about them. So it's a reminder, friends, to reflect on the church. And by the church, I don't just mean the, the formal organization of the church, I'm talking about the people who make up the church. Imagine what it would be like to not have the communion of the saints. According to this passage, it's judgment. It's judgment that you would do well to avoid. Yet for some, there's a cavalier attitude to being joined with and fellowship with the body of Christ. Friends, I just beg you, and I realize I'm probably preaching to the choir, don't take lightly the fellowship of God's people. You see a passage like this, and you see the gathering of God's people set in the context of loss, it reminds you of the beauty of what it means to be God's people so they will have no justification of the judgment they will have no communion with the saints and ultimately they will have no hope in the end but the way of the wicked will perish their end is destruction eternal torment in the fires of hell it's grim it's ugly it's a horrible thought but according to scripture this theme is repeated over And over and over again, those who choose to live in rebellion against God are without hope unless they repent and turn to him through Christ. When you hear the message of, of judgment and doom and gloom in the context of scripture, most of the time the purpose of that is to shake people so that they will turn to God And repent. It's not to condemn. Although ultimately. It's communicating. What will be true if they do not listen. But if there is a. Statement of judgment. That someone can hear. The statement of judgment is there. So that people then will respond. And repent. And listen. And humble themselves. And that's a kindness friends. That is a kindness to us. We have the destiny of the wicked, then we have the destiny of the righteous. And the destiny here, it's interesting because the, the idea here is found in verse six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And so there's this word know that comes into play here. And it's 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 ongoing. And it's intimate. So there's this relationship now that is established between God and those who are his followers that is ongoing. It's not just a one-time knowledge, but an ongoing developing knowledge. And it's intimate. This, This knowledge is deep and personal. So the destiny of the righteous is a deep, ongoing, intimate relationship with the Lord. They delight in his word. They they meditate on his word. They are nourished by his word. They bear fruit that is produced by that relationship. The ungodly, however, they'll perish. But the wise, the righteous, the safe sinners will be blessed. And again, we're talking there about spiritual blessing. Now friends, our comfort on that day That day of judgment is that we have Christ as our advocate who will testify before the Father on our behalf. The ungodly will have no leg to stand on but those who are known by the Lord will have Christ's gospel to stand on. All we have is Christ. We sang about that today. And he will hold us fast. That's another song that we often sing. Now there's two important considerations here as we kind of reflect on this psalm that I think are, are really important for us to, to think through. First of all, uh, the scope of the psalm. Um, there's, there's a huge interpretive question to ask about the psalm, and that's this. Who is the intended audience? And We need to ask that question so that the application of the psalm can be rightly put. Is it the believer looking out and considering the way of the unbeliever? Or is it something else? But friends, if we read this rightly, this is contained in the Old Testament. This is a psalm written in the context of Judaism. The psalm is directed at Israel. And within Israel, there are those who are the righteous and those who are the wicked. In the Proverbs, you'll find the challenge to Israel about the way of the wise and the way of the fool. And when you go to the New Testament, Jesus gives some clarity. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Just listen to what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name or do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So he says in that day, that is the day of judgment, that there will be many apparent disciples who will boast of their great dynamic ministries that are evidence that they are his. But he will answer that one can sound sincere and successful and still be lost. To that end, it would appear that Psalm 1 is addressed to Israel who are either righteous or wicked. All right? And by means of application, then, as we look at it ourselves, the question is this Is this talking about us who are righteous and those wicked people out there, or is it talking about those who identify themselves as the body of Christ who may be both righteous and wicked? Now, it's the church that needs to do some soul search. We need to ask ourselves the question, is this true of us? Are we caught up with the thinking of the world that is drawing us in? Are we behaving like the world because we believe in the ideology of the world rather than the ideology of Christ? And where do we find our true common ground? Is it in the body of Christ or is it in the world? And I think sometimes the church is like that. It's caught up more with the world than it is caught up with Christ. And the church today needs to ask themselves the question, is this true about us? Because the wicked person may not be out there, the wicked person may be in here. And the righteous person is not simply identified by attendance and participation, but by rightly answering the questions, what drives your life, what describes your life, and what will be the destiny of your life. That's the scope of this psalm. Secondly, I want to talk a little bit about the hope of this psalm. We can come to the psalm and feel a sense of unworthiness because we don't measure up. I hope that is how you find yourself. We have listened to counsel that was unwise and didn't glorify God. All right, check that box. We've behaved in ways that we're ashamed of. Check that box. We found ourselves in league with ideologies that are totally against God. Check that box. We've fallen short in our delight of God's word. Check that box. And so often, friends, we're not hungering, we're not meditating on what God says. We see ourselves as more like the chaff, which is blowing in the wind of culture, and we fear that we will not stand in the judgment. And you're right, friends. You and I do not measure up. You and I cannot measure up. There's only one man who can. There's only one man who was and is fully committed to the way of righteousness. There's only one man who faced the pressure of the wicked and stood tall in resisting it to the end. His name is Jesus. He is our hope. He is our joy. We put our faith in Him, not in our growing pursuit of being like Him, although that should be our pursuit. That is what we're called to be doing, but we don't measure ourselves based on our pursuit. We measure ourselves based on Christ, who is our all and in all. We fail at being like Him, but even when we fail, we rest, in what we know. Be still my soul. <laughs> we sang this morning. Fits right in there. We know that we're forgiven. We know that we're reconciled. We know that we're loved. We know that we're understood. And we get out of bed the next day with a heart oriented to pleasing Christ. Pursuing the way of righteousness. With the reality of the understanding that we will likely fall in our face. But we serve a God who helps us up. Keep plugging away. And so there's a hope here, friends, that we need to understand that I fall short, but Christ does not. And that I measure my life not by all the things that I am trying to pursue, although those things are important and those things should be there. But I measure my life by the fact that I am in Christ. That he is the one that does all these things. See, he is is the... He is the true blessed one. I am seeking to be like him, but I am not him. And friends, that should give us hope. That should give us perspective. Now, on some practical ways, I want to draw this to a close. Number one, have a plan for Bible reading and spiritual growth. It's a good time of the year to be asking that question or be challenging one another. Having a plan is a good tool. There are many plans out there, only be careful that they don't turn you into a Pharisee. And what do I mean by that is that you could be so locked into a plan. For example, we promote here the Robert Murray McShane plan. You read four chapters from different genres in the Bible every day. And, you know, if you happen to fail a day, does not mean you've lost your salvation. Or if you happen to keep it, does not mean you're godlier than anyone else. Okay? It's a plan. It's a plan to keep you anchored in the Word of God. It's a plan to keep you rooted. It's a plan to keep you, you know, getting your nourishment from different genres of the Bible. And friends, we need that. We need different genres in our life to, to help us. Some of them are, are clear and crisp like the, the epistles and sometimes we need the Psalms like this just to kind of find our feelings as a place to kind of interact with God and we need some certainty from other places. So we, we need those different things. But friends, don't allow your plan to turn you into a Pharisee and then also don't allow your plan to cause you to be discouraged. It is simply a tool to help you delight in and meditate on the word of God so for example if you're using the McShane plan it's every day four chapters and let's say you miss a day guess what you're not going to get through the Bible in the year unless you read those extra four chapters so either you read ahead you catch up or you say you know I'm just going to read the next four this is, we're not giving out ribbons at the end of the year You're not going to get a little star saying, look, you're you're a godly person now because you you got the McShane plan figured out. The point is these are tools to say, I want to be in God's word and here's a plan that I'm working. And so you you happen to miss a day, then you know what, just pick it up and continue it on. And And just work the plan. Read God's word. We must be people who love to read the word of God. Now, I realize there are times where you don't feel like it. Right? I don't almost feel like getting up in the morning. I don't feel all the time you know, like I want to exercise. And Sometimes you might feel like you know, I want to spend time in the Word of God, but sometimes you've got to fight through that feeling and just begin to do it, and you realize, ah, I needed this. I needed this. This was healthy. This was good. Another reading plan could be you simply read one section of Scripture repeatedly for a month. And As some of you know, we're going to be, next week, beginning the book of Job. And one of the things you could do is divide Job up into you know three or four sections and just read that section for a month. Just let it be your life. Live it. Breathe it. Think it. You know? And that way when you come together on Sunday morning where you're, you're, you're coming, you already have an awareness, not just of one text, but a breadth, that you can connect things together. It's just a beautiful way of, of allowing the word of God to be in you. So have a plan for Bible reading and spiritual growth. Secondly, Learn to measure all contemporary ideologies through the lens of God's word. Now, friends, we hear things that are said on TV and movies, you know, on blogs, by politicians, or on the radio. And I'm saying here, learn to filter those ideas and statements through what we know that the scriptures teach. And so just be mindful as you're hearing things to to bring up the filter of God's word, to be able to identify what is true and healthy and right and good. Be practical by applying the word of God. Don't just say, oh, that's just something I need for Sunday. It should be something that is a part of our life. It's ongoing. And friends, this will be a lifelong pursuit We're all, you know, if we're we're, we're pursuing this, this is something we're doing the rest of our lives, we're doing it all together. And I don't think anyone's arrived. But it's good to just have a mindset that I'm gonna learn to measure all contemporary ideologies through the lens of God's word. Third, be aware of your strengths and weaknesses. Let the word of God dwell in you in such a way that it is both revealing your weaknesses as well as giving you ways that you can go grow stronger in them. Learning what your weaknesses are is a good thing. But it's not really helpful if that's all that happens, right? Uh, so you have a problem with anxiety, okay, great. Well, I have a problem with anxiety. Well, what does the word of God then say uh, to someone who has a weakness of anxiety. We wanna learn and we wanna grow in those areas. So be willing to listen to the word of God, identify your weaknesses, but allow it also then to build you up to help you with those weaknesses. And and, and those places where you're strong, it's possible that you may end up relying on your strengths rather than uh, on the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so you have gotta be able to measure Is this really something that God is doing in and through me or is this me functioning in my natural giftedness? So thinking through those things. Finally, and I think this is so important, allow the body of Christ to help you be accountable and headed in the right direction. Friends, this is not, the, the, the Christian walk is not supposed to be pursued in isolation. We are the body of Christ. We need each other. And that means then that the body of Christ needs to be the kind of place where people can struggle, can get help, can find resource. We're not all coming to church as perfect Christians. We're coming gathered together as broken people seeking to pursue Christ on this journey, having fallen down multiple times. Some of us have experience in certain areas that that can be a tool to help someone else who may be going through something similar. But we must be a, a, a culture where it's okay for us to fall down, to repent and to be restored and to pursue Christ again. Are we that kind of church where people are going to be honest about their struggles and grow in their struggles. Friends, this is a journey that God's called us to. A journey and a pursuit. Reflect on this psalm. I would encourage you, memorize this psalm and just meditate on it through your life. It's such a helpful tool just to remind yourself, where am I on this journey? How have I been influenced? Am I really like this tree? Am I more like the chaff? Maybe you're in a season where you're more like the chap because maybe you're facing something. Maybe you're struggling with something. And God's saying, listen, I want you to keep pressing on this journey, seeking to glorify me, pursuing me, allowing the word of God to, to feed you, to nourish you, and to give you direction for what I've called you to. So, Lord, help us today. We've looked at this psalm, Lord, this incredibly powerful, beautiful psalm that is so full of of meaning and direction and counsel for us. Allow us, Lord, to to contemplate what it is that you want us to walk away from with today. Lord, for some it might just be the, the simple reality of being reminded that we are on a journey and that we need to be tooled and ready for that journey and that there are voices that we need to be mindful of and aware of. For others, it might be a commitment to get back to the systematic reading of God's word and taking it in and seeking to meditate on it. For others, it might be just knowing that we are like the chaff being blown this way and that by ideologies that are out there. Well, give us clarity Help us to grow. Help us, Lord, to love you and to to trust you and to, to glean from you. And Lord, may this church, Gateway Bible Church, be your church first of all. But Lord, may it be your church that seeks to nurture and grow all those who are seeking to pursue you and to do so in such a way where we can be helpful and encouraging to one another. We ask this now in your precious holy name.